You know, brothers and sisters, um, since I've become a parent, I've had a, a, a relatively regular situation to deal with. And that is that, you know, as a dad, often I'll have things to talk about with my sons. You know, it might be some sort of discipline issue, it might be an issue to do with the Lord, or it might be an issue to do with their life or what they're interested in. And often, I get a certain reaction from my sons. And they'll be there, and I'll be talking to them, and there'll be like this kind of glazed look on their face. Or they'll be looking out the window. Or they'll be looking down there at one of their toys. And has any other parent had that experience? Yeah? So I'm not the only one that has communication issues with my children. But when that happens, you, you sense yourself getting more frustrated, don't you, as a parent? And so you slow down, you try and take your time, you try and explain it very simply, but still, they look at you with this look. And it's almost as if they're saying, you know, Dad, I just think what you're saying at the moment is just a bit foolish. Now, I bring that slightly funny uh, situation up from my life because that was the situation that Paul was facing in the Corinthian church as he came to write this chapter in 2 Corinthians. There were certain people within the church there, particularly the unrepentant minority, that thought that his ministry was really just a bit, well, it was a bit foolish. If you remember last week, or actually the last couple of weeks, John has been saying to us that from about chapter 10 onwards in this book, uh, Paul is focusing his um, writing upon this unrepentant minority, this these people in the church that had listened to the false teachers, they were not willing to listen to Paul's ministry, and they just thought, you know, Paul, we just don't really want to listen to you anymore. We think that your ministry is not really real. It's a bit foolish, really. This was a situation that he was facing. And he starts off in verse 1 of our text by saying, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, acknowledging this atmosphere that he had that people thought he was foolish and indeed you do bear with me and so what he's saying in this verse is he's exhorting the the Corinthians in general but this unrepentant minority specifically to bear with him which means to hold him up in the ministry that he felt God had called him to he acknowledges at the end there that they've done it previously when he says indeed you do bear with me but he's encouraging them to keep on going. I want you to bear with my ministry, even if you're tempted to think that it's foolish. And now he's doing that in verse 1 because of what he's going to say from verse 3 to verse 15. Because in this section of Scripture today, brothers and sisters, what Paul is going to talk about is the tactics of false teachers in the church. Myself and John have said on a number of occasions that in the Corinthian church, there were these false teachers that were there, they were trying to influence the people there, and for the very first time in this book, Paul is going to deal with them and their tactics, the way they worked specifically. And so he's saying to these people, look, bear with me, hold me up in my ministry, because what I'm going to say to you in this section, if you listen to it, if you take it in, it will benefit you and it will take you away from deception. This is what he's going to do today. In verse 2, 
He shows us what his motive is in doing that. He says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So he says here that, look, his motive for exalting these people in these tactics of false teachers is because he has a passion and he has a zeal for them. That's what that word jealousy there means. And that passion and that zeal has come to him from God. Why? Well, it's because he has betrothed them to one husband, that he may present them as a chaste virgin to Christ. And what he's doing there is he is taking the Jewish wedding sort of ceremony and he's applying it to the Corinthian believers. In Jewish weddings, what would happen is the man and the woman would get engaged. And when the man and the woman got engaged, the father of the man or the bridegroom would pay the father of the bride of, uh, of some money, essentially, to say, um, I'm paying you this money so that you will promise to give your daughter to my son. And that was a really important thing. Engagement in Jewish culture is much more important than engagement is in our culture. And so what would happen is the man would go away, the bridegroom would go away for a period of time, he would prepare the wedding, he would come back, and he would claim his bride, and the, the father of that bride would give her to him as a chaste virgin. And he's applying that to Corinthian believers. He, he knew full well that the ministry of the Spirit in him had made, in a sense, these people in Corinth come to Christ. They had been drawn to Christ. They'd believed in Christ. They were born again. The Spirit was within them. They were betrothed to Jesus. They were betrothed to him forever. And Paul took that extremely seriously. He also had this passion, this zeal, because Paul knew that one day, at the judgment seat of Christ, he would have to, in a sense, give an account for the quality of the Corinthian believers. He wanted them to be the most fruitful, the most like Christ. He wanted them to be the most holy that they could be. And he was concerned that the false teachers were going to spoil that. And that's what led to his passion and his zeal. If there's one thing that sobers me the most about being a pastor, it's knowing that one day I will stand before Jesus and he will want me to give an account for you. He will want me to explain how I, how I did in terms of my pastoring of you guys. How I led you, how I taught you, and how I counseled you. And to me, that sobers me. I know I, I, know I can only do it through the Spirit of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for that, that it's not reliant upon my ability, it's him. But too many people go into pastoring today because they want money, or they want fame, or they want to be well-known. No, the reason why you go into pastoring is because people belong to Jesus, and he wants those people to be taken care of. And he wants those people to be, in a sense, protected from false teachers. Now, we know full well that what Paul's going to do today in talking about these tactics of false teachers definitely applied to the Corinthians. They had this real problem of these men that were really trying to influence them. They were false teachers. They were having an effect upon their lives. But the question is, does this uh, scripture have any relevance for us? 
Do we need to know about the tactics of false teachers in the 21st century? Was it just a problem in the first century? Well, I would say that, uh, no, it is a problem now. We definitely need to know the tactics of false teachers. It's very relevant to us. Listen to what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. He said, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. So Peter makes it clear here in this verse that there would be false teachers in the church. And it's very, very interesting that when you read the beginning of 2 Peter, that letter is not addressed to any particular Christian group in the first century. And when that happens in the New Testament, you have to know that whatever it says in that book applies to the whole church, for the whole of church history, no matter what cultural setting they are in. So there are definitely false teachers in the church. That's a sad testimony of church history. You read any church history book and you will find occasion after occasion after occasion of men bringing in these destructive heresies that will lead people away from Jesus. But there are two problems that Christians have with false teachers. It's the same two problems that they have with the devil. Christians either overemphasize the presence of false teachers in the church. And they think everyone's a false teacher if they don't agree with everything that they believe, even secondary issues that don't affect the gospel. And that's not good. But then the other problem is that Christians think there's no false teachers. It doesn't matter. You can listen to anyone who names the name of Jesus and you're going to learn from them. Both of those views are wrong. We must know that there are false teachers in the church, but we must have a balanced view of how their tactics work so that we can protect, listen, the integrity of the gospel message. That's the most important thing. Because Jesus still wants to save people, brothers and sisters. Jesus still wants to grow the church in the 21st century. If we know the tactics of false teachers, we can stop what the devil wants to do and see what Jesus wants to do more. So that's what we're going to see today. So the first tactic that Paul speaks about is in verses 3 and 4, where he says the following. He says, But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Now in verse 3, Paul has this, he, he, he's writing down the fact that he has this fear about the Corinthian believers. And that fear is that their minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. What is this simplicity that is in Christ? That's obviously in Paul's mind. Well, to put it very simply, the simplicity of Christ is the fact that when it comes to our entry in, our sustainment in, and the final fulfillment of our salvation, it is always and only about Jesus Christ. Jesus was the one that drew you to salvation. 
Jesus was the one that went to the cross to die for your sins, who rose again on the third day that you put your faith in to be saved. Jesus' spirit is in you if you're born again, and the spirit is the one that sustains you and changes you to be more like Christ through the whole of your life as a believer. And in the end, it's Jesus himself who will resurrect you on that day to have a glorified body. It's about Jesus. Always will be. It's never not going to be. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 to 31, the following. It says, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Our salvation, brothers and sisters, is always about Jesus. And so therefore, if we boast in anything, it can only be in him. It can only be in the Lord. We can never boast in anything with regard to our salvations in and of ourselves. Because it's Jesus. Jesus gave you salvation. Jesus sustained you in that salvation. And he will glorify you in the future. Yes, you have an involvement. You're called to cooperate with his spirit. But it always starts with Jesus. And it was this very thing that Paul was fearful about. He was fearful that the Corinthian believers, their minds were being corrupted away from this truth, which means that the integrity of their faith was being compromised. And that was happening by the false teachers' influence. And what the false teachers were doing was they were deceiving them. You see that word there where it says deceived in verse 3? That means to lead someone astray through a statement or a picture of something. And they were doing it in the same way that the serpent deceived Eve. And in Genesis 3, what you see the, the serpent do is he questions the word of God. He said to Eve, did God really say that? Are you sure that God really doesn't want you to eat that fruit? God just doesn't want you to be like him. He's hiding blessing from you. He questioned the word of God. He questioned the authority of God. And this is what these false teachers were doing in the Corinthian church. They were doing the same thing. They were questioning the word of God. They were saying, are you sure the Old Testament scriptures say that? Are you sure that Paul said that? We know what you need to do. You need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to follow the law. You need to be circumcised. And thus they were corrupting the simplicity of Christ by making the gospel complicated. The other thing they were doing was they were saying, yeah, you need to believe in Jesus, but you don't need to worry about repentance. You don't need to worry about having a changed life. You can carry on in your sin. Thus they were, they were corrupting the simplicity of Christ by denying the power of Christ to change people. This is what false teachers do. This is the first tactic. They corrupt the simplicity of Christ. That's what they do. And when that happens, that is a very dangerous thing. And it's dangerous because of what Paul says in verse 4. When he talks about this thing of preaching another Jesus, a different spirit, or a different gospel, what he's saying there is he's saying, look, 
if you allow yourself to believe anything that a false teacher says, do you know what you're doing? You're opening yourself up to believe more false teaching. He says that you may well put up with them. He's saying that if one of, their, if one of these guys who are false teachers, if one of their leaders comes to the church and preaches to you, you've already accepted what they're saying and you're going to believe it even more when the leaders come. It's a bit like someone getting addicted to drugs. When someone has that taste of drugs, when they take that first injection, they open themselves up to something and they go back for more. And they go back for more. And they go back for more. And people's lives are destroyed by that. And this is the same thing that happens with false teachers. As soon as you open yourself up to any false teaching, you're more likely to believe more false teaching in your life as a believer. And many Christians' lives have been destroyed because of that. Christians' faith have been shipwrecked because of the influence of false teachers. And this is why, if ever, 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 myself, John, anyone else in this pulpit, or anyone in the church says to you, you, you get saved by believing in Jesus and following the law, or you get saved by believing in Jesus and not having a changed life, run away from that person, because they're a false teacher. Rebuke them, openly. Because if you allow that kind of thing to, take, to, to set foot in the church people's lives will be destroyed. Now, many of you probably are sitting there thinking, well, I know that, Adam. I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't allow myself to be influenced by that kind of thing. Well, let's listen to what Paul says in Galatians 6, verse 1. He says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Now, what Paul's saying in that verse is he's saying if a Christian falls into sin, someone who's mature should try and restore that Christian in the spirit of gentleness. But they must be careful, lest they be tempted with the same sin that that person's fallen into. What that teaches is that flesh attracts flesh. I'll say that again. Flesh attracts flesh. These false teachers, they were preaching from the flesh. They weren't preaching from the Spirit of God, they were preaching from the flesh. I mean, let's face it, if we're all honest in here, we would all like to save ourselves. We would all like to take something to God to say, here you go, God, I've done something righteous, that should be good enough for you. Or the other thing is, is that Christians like to get away with sin. They don't want to live a changed life. And so these false teachers were preaching from the flesh, and listen... When that happens, your flesh, no matter how mature you are, is attracted to that. Because flesh attracts flesh. And so therefore, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, he says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. We are always going to be in a place where we could be tempted by false teachers. Because we still live in sinful bodies. We still have a flesh, even though the Spirit's within us. And so we need to be aware that if any false teacher does any of this first tactic, 
run away from them because you will be attracted to it. Now, we can rejoice about the fact that Jesus is not like that. Jesus was the ultimate teacher. And when Jesus was on the earth, he teached a simplicity of faith. He teached that all you needed to do to, to be saved is to believe in him. You didn't have to believe in him and then follow the law. You didn't have to believe in him and then just kind of live a sinful life. He said, simply, just believe in me. Believe in what I provide for you at the cross. I mean, he said in John 6 to those people, do you remember those people asked him, Lord, what do we do to do the works of God? He said simply, believe in me. Jesus lived and he taught about just believing in him. That's the type of person that I want to follow. I don't want to follow any false teacher that says to me, I need to do something, or says to me that I don't need to live a changed life. I want to follow Jesus so that I can be changed from the inside out. So let's live that way, brothers and sisters. So he goes on in his next section from verses 5 to 10 where he talks about his second the second tactic of false teachers. And he introduces that tactic to us in verses 5 and 6, where he says, For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. Even though I'm untrained in speech, yet I'm not in knowledge. But we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. Now, Paul starts off this section with making a statement in verse 5 where he just says that he's not inferior to these most eminent apostles. And where he says that he's not inferior, it means that he's not behind them, he's not any less than them, he's on, in a sense, an even keel or even higher. But who are these most eminent apostles? Well, most Bible scholars would say that given the context, he's speaking sarcastically here about the false teachers in the Corinthian church. So that's who he's comparing himself with. And in verse 6, he's confident that he's not in any way inferior because even though he's untrained in speech, he has knowledge. But more than that, he says that, that him and his team have been thoroughly manifested among them in all things. And what that means is, is that Paul, his confidence was in the fact that Jesus was changing him from the inside out. Paul knew he was born again. He knew that the Spirit was changing his mind, his emotions, his will, his speech, his actions. And that was being most manifested to the Corinthian believers in his ministry. That was what his confidence was in as he's comparing himself with these false teachers. Now, the fact that he does this teaches that the false teachers didn't do that. And John alluded to this last week in chapter 10 when he said that the false teachers... They cared about outward appearance. Do you remember him saying that? And they cared about setting their own standards about ministry. So what the false teachers were interested in, listen, is they were interested in emphasizing outward appearance rather than the inward change that Paul emphasized. And we see a specific example of that in verse 6 where the false teachers, what they would do is that they would emphasize the quality of someone's speech they were really into good speakers, good orators. Paul knew that he wasn't a very good orator. But what the false teachers did is they used their good speech to deceive people. Peter mentions this in his uh, second epistle in chapter 2 again. He says, 
by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. And then in verse 18, he says, For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. False teachers use great oratory style to deceive people. This is what they do. False teachers, this is a second tactic, they emphasize outward appearance rather than inward change. Now this is really, really important to know about. Because again, this is a very attractive tactic of the devil. Because again, let's face, let, let's face it, if we're being honest, as Christians, we are attracted to ministries that look cool, that are very successful, that have a lot of money, that come across as being powerful. But yet, we're not attracted to ministries that emphasize one of the greatest things that God does, which is changing people from the inside out via the Spirit. You know, it never ceases to amaze me how Christians in the 21st century are attracted to the razzmatazz, the big lights, the big ministries. Now, I must say, there's nothing wrong with having a big ministry as long as the emphasis is in the right place. But we forget the most important thing that God wants to do now between us being here and being in eternity, which is making us more like Christ and using us to save people. And so when you know that, you can understand why the devil uses this tactic, why he deceives Christians into caring about outward appearance rather than caring about inward change. It's very, very subtle, but it's present in a vast array of church today in the 21st century. Now, he goes on, in verses 7 to 10, to kind of bring up a real-life example of the false teachers emphasizing outward appearance rather than inward change. And he starts off in verse 7 by saying, Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? Now what he's saying here is he's saying that when he went to Corinth to do his ministry... Paul didn't receive any money from the Corinthian people who became believers. If you read Acts chapter 18 about his ministry in Corinth, what Paul did was he actually met a couple there called Priscilla and Aquila, and he actually became a tent maker. He worked during the day, and then he did his ministry in the evening. So so for the Corinthian people, he preached the gospel of God to them free of charge, as he says here. And his motive in that is that he wanted to humble himself so that they might be exalted. And what he means by that is that his main priority was not his uh, material, practical needs. It was the fact that he wanted these people to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wanted to exalt them to this position where they are saved, where they are saints, where they are children of God. That was his main priority. His main priority was not going into the office and saying, "Uh, excuse me, where's my wage? He wanted people to know about Jesus. But it's interesting because in verse 7, he writes it in a very negative way, doesn't he? He says, did I commit sin in doing this? And what that means is, is that when 
he did this in Corinth, what the false teachers then did was they said it was wrong for him to do that. It was wrong for him not to take a wage. So that's very important because, again, you see that contrast where Paul's emphasis was on inward change, people getting saved, people growing to know Jesus, but the false teachers, their emphasis was upon his practical needs and upon outward appearance. Just remember that contrast as we go through these verses. In verses 8 and 9, he talks about how he actually got money in Corinth. He says, I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And what he's saying in that verse is that when he was there in Corinth, he actually took money from other churches in that region so that he could minister to the Corinthian people. Now again, look at how he writes it. It's very important. He says, I robbed. So he's writing in a negative way again. And that's important because what Paul's wanting to say in verse 8 is even though he didn't take any money from the Corinthian people, it is okay for ministers to have a wage. That's really, really important to remember. It's okay for ministers to be paid. We see this clearly in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, where it says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honour, especially those who labour in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the labourer is worthy of his wages. What Paul's saying in those verses, he's saying, Look, if someone's going to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is hard work. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort, especially if they labor in word and doctrine, especially if they're preaching a lot. That person who's doing that ministry will be working crazy <laughs> to prepare those sermons, or they should be. I remember a, um, a man saying once that, uh, he said that on average for a for a, 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 a minister to prepare a 45-minute talk for a Sunday morning, it would take them at least eight hours. Non-stop to do, well, not non-stop, but over the week it would take them eight hours to do that. And that's just technical preparation. It's just preparation in the Word. But listen, there's the meditation of what God wants to say through that Scripture, and then also there's the battle that comes with preparing the Word of God for His people. And trust me, I, I have known since I've been a pastor a new level of spiritual warfare like I've never known before. The devil does not want this word being preached to anyone. He doesn't want the truth of it to be preached to anyone because he knows that the Spirit uses it and powerfully changes people. And so therefore, he will get at ministers. And it is really difficult, seriously. I'll just be honest with you, that because of this spiritual battle, there have been a number of occasions where I was going to go up to John and say, you know what, John, I've had it. I quit. This is just too difficult, man. But by God's grace, he's helped me through that. And what Paul's saying is he's saying, look, ministers work incredibly hard and they should be given a wage. But even though that's the case, that shouldn't be the priority. The wage should not be the priority for the minister the priority should be to preach the word of God and let people know about Jesus. And that's what he says in verse 9. 
where it says, And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. And so what he says in this verse is he's saying, look, the reason actually why I didn't take any money from the Corinthian people is because when I went there, I saw that if they were going to pay me a wage, it would mean that they were very burdened. They may have been very poor people. I don't know. But he knew that it would be an extreme burden from these people to give him a wage. We see there that he received from the brethren in Macedonia. And what he's probably referring to there is the church in Philippi. Because he says in Philippians 4 that that church was the one that really ministered to him and gave him money when he was in that region. And their giving was relational. Do you see that? They actually went to Corinth to give him the money. So it's a relational giving. Not a mechanical giving. It's relational. That's why uh, it's important. You know, When you're thinking about giving money to the church, you need to get to know those who are leading the church. See where they're coming from. See whether you agree with them in, in, in the essentials of the gospel. Have that relationship with them. Let that relational aspect, in a sense, encourage you to give generously to that person. He then finishes this section in verse 10 by saying, As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. And so he says here in verse 10, very emphatically, look, the way that I dealt with this situation in Corinth, it proves that the truth of Christ is in me. And I will boast about this in all of that region. Now, this is a real-life example of how Paul emphasized inward change. I've said already that his priority was preaching the gospel. But the priority of the false teachers was his practical needs and outward appearance. Now, this is very important because I believe that the reason why the Spirit gives this specific example in this section is because the most obvious way that false teachers show this tactic is through money. What am I saying? What I'm saying is is that when you have someone who claims to be a minister of Christ who spends all of his time talking about money, spends all of his time talking about his practical needs and his need for money in ministry, you need to think about that. Because I really believe that the Spirit is using this example to say that the most obvious way that false teachers do this is through them asking for money when they don't need to. Their emphasis is not on inward change. It's on their outward appearance and on their practical needs. So think about that when you're next watching religious television and you've got all these guys asking for money. Ask yourself the question, are they really God's minister? Why don't they just trust that God can provide for them? Think about that. Now again, we can rejoice because Jesus was not like this. Hallelujah. I'm so thankful that Jesus, when he was alive, was about inward change. He said, you have to be born again. Your heart has to be completely changed to come into the kingdom of God. Jesus taught in the Gospels and he taught for the apostles that he wanted people to become more like him. 
He wanted inward change in the heart. Yes, Christianity does produce some outward changes, but the most important change, listen, is in your heart. Unfortunately, at the moment, I don't have a glorified body. I don't have a six-pack. And I'm not expecting that, maybe until I get it. But the most important thing that God's doing in me is not my outward appearance, it's the inward things that he's doing in me. My outer man is, is, is becoming more corrupt every day, but the inward man is being renewed day by day. This is what Jesus was about. He rebuked the Pharisees for being whitewashed tombs. They had the appearance of being clean on the outside, but inside it was death. They had the wrong emphasis, the outside. They should have had an emphasis on the inside. And this is what false teachers do, brothers and sisters. They emphasize the outside rather than the inside. And let's not follow them. Let's follow Jesus who emphasizes the right thing. Now, the last tactic is in verses 11 to 15, and this is our last section today. And he starts off in verse 11 by saying, Why? Because I do not love you? God knows. This is a slightly odd verse, really, but I believe that what he's doing here is Paul knew that when he wrote the line before about the fact that he was going to boast about the way he dealt with money, in Corinth, he knew that the people in Corinth or the believers would be like, no, don't tell people about our inability of giving you a wage. They thought that it would make them look bad. And the false teachers took hold of that and they said, well, the fact that Paul is doing that means that he doesn't love you. And that's why he's saying there, why? Because I do not love you? God knows. Paul really was not concerned about the opinion of man. He was concerned about the opinion of God. We must be concerned about the opinion of God. We must not fear the opinion of man. And this is what Paul's doing here. He's saying, that I don't really care what these false teachers are saying about whether I love you or not. God knows that I love you. God knows that I have sacrificed lots for you, and that shows that Jesus is in me. He then goes in verse 12 to say why he wanted to boast about the way he dealt with money in Corinth. He says, but what I do... I will also continue to do that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. And what Paul's making very clear here is the reason why he was going to boast about how he dealt with money in Corinth was because he knew that the false teachers wanted to follow him to all the churches that he was going to go to and they wanted to claim that they were like him. They wanted to say, yeah, we're like Paul. But we just do things a bit differently. We, we, we think you should believe in Jesus, but you also need to follow the law. Or they would say, yeah, we, but we, we know you need to believe in Jesus, but don't worry about repentance. Don't worry about sin. And also, by the way, you also need to give us a lot of money for our wage. We need to go and stay in the best you know, inn or hotel in this city. We need to you know, have good, good food every night. He knew that they would do this. And so he went around all the churches wanting to basically cut that off. He did not want their uh, ministry having any influence in these churches. But notice in verse 12 that he also shows us what the third and final tactic of false teachers are. And listen, they lie about themselves to get what they want. 
They lie. They say things about themselves that are not really true. Paul says in verse, uh, verse 13, he says, after making this statement, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And this is very interesting because this is the first time in this section that he's linked that such strong statement with a tactic of false teachers. And that teaches, brothers and sisters, listen very carefully, that you can know full well whether someone is a false minister of Christ if they lie consistently about themselves to get what they want. I'll say that again. You can know for certain that someone is a false minister of Christ if they lie consistently about themselves to get what they want. They're deceitful workers. They transform themselves into apostles of Christ for their own gain, to get their own influence, to gain money. And then in verse 14 he says, And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. What he's saying here is he's asking the question, should we be surprised by the fact that they do this? Should we be surprised that false teachers lie on a consistent basis? And the answer to that question is no, we shouldn't be surprised. Because false teachers are like their father, the devil. In verse 15, he um, likens them to be ministers of the devil. False teachers are ministers of the devil. They're not born again. They don't have the Spirit of God in them. They are ministers of a dark, evil kingdom. And we've already seen here a certain aspect of the devil, that they lie. The Bible says that the devil is the father of lies. Jesus said in the Gospels that you can know that someone is of the devil if their speech is not consistent. He said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And if it's anything else, then that is of the devil. Why? Because the devil is the father of lies. So no wonder that the ministers of the devil lie about who they are. But then also, look, it says there that, they, that as, the, as Satan transforms himself into an angel of light, so false teachers transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. Now what on earth does that mean, that the devil transforms himself into an, into an angel of light? Well, I think it means this. Uh, you may or may not know this, that, but when the devil was created, his name was Lucifer, and he was a very beautiful creation. He was the most beautiful creation that God had ever made. In a sense, he was the most wise creation that God had ever made. And you see this clearly taught, I would say, in Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 to 15. I'm just going to read those. This is speaking of the devil when he was made. It says, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. 
The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub. That's an angel who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. This is a description of, of, of Lucifer before he fell. He was beautiful. He was full of wisdom. And then, of course, he fell. Now, I have the conviction that what, when he says here that he can transform himself into an angel of light, I believe what he's saying is that even though Lucifer fell and became the devil, he still has some image of that beauty and that wisdom that he had when he was created. And he can use that for his own benefit when he wants to. One Bible scholar said it like this. He said that if Satan was standing here physically and we could see him, he would be very beautiful and we would be attracted to him. And this is what the devil does. The devil transforms himself into something that looks very pretty, something that looks very good, very righteous for his own benefit. And that is what his ministers do. His ministers, even though they're not born again, they're dead in their sins and transgressions, can come across as being very good, very righteous. I mean, isn't it true that sometimes we look at some unbelievers and we think, man, that, that person is, is a good person. They're doing good things. And that's what the devil and his ministers do. They lie about who they are. And they transform themselves to deceive not just unbelievers, but believers. And we must know that. Again, I'm so thankful that Jesus is not like this. <laughs> the great and only teacher of the people of God said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the light. Jesus in his person is the truth. There is no lies in him. There's no hypocrisy in him. He is truth. And everything he's written in this word by his spirit is truth as well. And that's who we're called to follow. We're called to follow the one who's truthful in every circumstance of our life. However difficult it is to hear that truth, it's better to hear the truth and have pain than to hear lies, have a partial benefit, but in the end end up in destruction. Brothers and sisters, we've seen today these three tactics that false teachers try to bring about in churches. And maybe the Spirit has been convicting you today that you've allowed yourself to come under the influence of false teachers. Maybe you've lived under a ministry that's very legalistic. Maybe you've lived under a ministry that says that, yes, you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to do this, 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 and this to be saved. Maybe you've lived under a ministry that says that, yeah, you need to believe in Jesus, but don't worry about a changed life. And you sense that maybe, have I allowed myself to be influenced by that? Maybe today as a believer, you're emphasizing the outward appearance rather than the inward change. And you know that's been because of some ministry that you've listened to. Or maybe you're in here today and you know and you feel hurt and you feel bitter about the fact that you've allowed yourself to listen to a man or a woman 
that's lied out of their teeth to get money from you, to take you for granted as a Christian, and you just feel hurt about that and you feel bitter about that, and that is stumbling you in your Christian walk. Well, this is why we're talking about it today, because God wants to deal with it. God wants every single one of you in here to know the tactics of false teachers so that you as individuals and us as a church can always make sure that the integrity of the gospel is kept within Servants Church so that we can take the gospel to people who need to hear it. But also, if there's anyone in here who doesn't know Jesus yet, I just want to finish with you and what Paul says right at the end of verse 15 where he says that the end of the devil and, his, and the false teachers will be according to their works. Now, what he's saying there is he's saying that there's a judgment coming for the devil and his false ministers. And if you don't know Jesus in here to this morning, I want to be completely honest with you and completely transparent with you that if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know him and his forgiveness if you're living in your sin and you just think this God stuff is just a load of rubbish, you will have a similar judgment to the devil and his false ministers if you don't turn to God. But the immeasurably good news is this, that even though that's the case for you today, today you can get saved as well. Today you can meet Jesus who came to the earth as a man and as God. He went to the cross. He died for every single one of your sins that you, you ever have done and you ever will do so that you can be an innocent and righteous child of God and you can have a changed life. And that, my friend, is a much better option than the option that you will face if you don't turn.